In this next hour, we hear about public school vouchers in Wisconsin. We invited Julie Underwood, Professor of Law Education, Policy, and Practice at UW-Madison. The talk took place on June 6, 2018 at the Capital Lakes Retirement Community in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials at the League's website and the League's position on this issue at lwvdanecounty.org. But first we hear from Janine Edwards, who introduces Professor Julie Underwood. We're very pleased that Dr. Julie Underwood can speak with us this evening. Dr. Underwood holds two terminal degrees, a law degree from Indiana University in 1979 and a PhD in educational leadership from the University of Florida in 1984. She speaks to us this evening as the Susan Engelleiter Professor of Law Education, Policy, and Practice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Julie was a faculty member at UW-Madison from 1986 to 1995 while she worked in the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction as an attorney. Dr. Underwood has served as dean at two universities. She was dean at Miami University School of Education and Allied Professions from 1995 to 98. Subsequently, she served as dean of the UW-Madison College of Education. In between those two stints as dean, Julie worked for seven years as the associate executive director and general counsel for the National School Boards Association in Washington, D.C. In this position, Dr. Underwood led a legal advocacy program on behalf of the nation's public school boards. She presented friend of the court's briefs and legal strategies before the U.S. Supreme Court and lower courts. She also was responsible for the 3,000 members of the Council of School Attorneys. Dr. Underwood has co-authored several books and a number of other publications. She writes a monthly column for the publication Phi Delta Kappen, which is a professional journal in the field of education. So Dr. Underwood is eminently qualified to speak to us tonight on the topic, Keeping the Public in Public Schools. Let's welcome her. For me, this is not an academic interest. Set it out to begin with, I have a point of view. I've been working on this topic of, of vouchers for a very long time. To me, it's a, very, um, it's a very important topic. And I happened to be um, general counsel, an interim general counsel for the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction in 1990 when the legislature passed the Milwaukee Parental Choice Bill um, in the budget bill. They didn't pass the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program. It was in the budget bill. And so as general counsel for the Department of Public Instruction, um, it fell to the Department of Public Instruction and me to write the regulations, draft the proposed regulations for that particular bill. Um, we also um, engaged in litigation on that, on that plan, the, in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Plan. Um, and I have had the honor of losing that case 
um, in every venue that I have litigated. Um, but since it is, the world is like deja vu all over again, uh, at one point we did have to litigate the question of whether um, Burt Grover, many of you may not know Burt Grover, but I served for Burt, you know Burt Grover, very nice person, and actually somebody who is more passionate than I am. So that's hard to believe, but we had to litigate whether um, Burt Grover as state superintendent could actually have his own attorney. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And, um, and so in between all of that, I, I served as, as uh, Dr. Grover's attorney, private attorney, before we made sure that the Department of Public Instruction could actually be represented separately from um, the governor's attorney uh, and the, the attorneys that the, uh, the governor appointed for, for the agency. Um, so what I plan to do is kind of a, a broad view, a broad view of what vouchers do generally, because since 1990, vouchers have been enacted in all sorts of places around the United States. There's been a lot of litigation. There have been lots of different types. There's been a lot of proliferation, and there are a lot of different types of vouchers or voucher kind of activities that have gone on across the United States. So I, I'm going to do some of that broad overview I believe that um, funding vouchers for private school tuition um, is detrimental to our system of public education. And I'll tell you a little bit of why. Um, you know that it's contrary to the notion of public, the public purpose of education. You have to then wonder why, why we see this proliferation or what the goal is. I actually believe the goal is to dismantle public education. We're going to talk a little bit about establishment of religion because everybody always wants to talk about, well, wait a second, that's sending money to private religious schools. How can you do that? Want to catch on that one, right? Um, I think it's important to think about the transparency and the rights of students. I believe in the United States Constitution. I believe in, you know, structures of government. So I want to think about that. Um, and then I want to think about the funding and and of course, and of course, with the uh, support for public schools. So, um, thinking about public education. So, I I believe that actually providing money, taking money from the public schools and giving it to the private schools is basically contrary to the notion of public education, for a number of reasons. Most important is that the purpose of public education is to actually take everyone, take all comers. We take, we, I think about we as, I represent public schools. Did I mention that? Uh, so we take all comers, we move them along, we help integrate those who are new to our communities, into our community, and we create a notion of the civic good. That's part of what public schools are all about, taking everybody and creating the public in public education. We have public access. We have, um, we have public accountability. So um, you vote in school board elections. Uh, you vote, vote for your legislators, uh, both federal, state, and local. Well, all 
local, local, state, and federal. Um, school board members are held accountable. Uh, you can think about how different particular rules and um, responsibilities to public schools get voted on in terms of that public accountability. Also in terms of public accountability, um, public schools are held to fairly high standards because we are public institutions. So school board meetings have to be open and transparent. Our funding is, is, can be scrutinized quite carefully. Um, we are responsible for carrying out uh, civil rights legislation. We are responsible for providing people with their constitutional rights. That kind of accountability is important to me in a public institution. Private institutions don't have that. And I honestly believe that if you're going to be spending public money, you should have that public accountability on all levels. Both that you should be spending the money in a very clear way that should be transparent, and you should be responsible for carrying out those kind of um, local, state, and federal statutes and constitutional responsibilities. Um, yeah, public funding, that's an important part. But the, the most important part to me is that public schools have always been, um, we say public schools are the heart of a community. And when you think about a local school, particularly a small community, it is where we come together. Um, it is where we build community. It is where we serve one another. But also, public schools are the heart of a democracy. And as, um, as a school attorney, that's important to me, being part of, and League of Women Voters, kind of, that's being the heart of a democracy. When we started this great experiment, both the experiment of a democracy and the experiment of common schools or public schools um, that took everybody at that point, we've, that everybody keeps growing, right? When we started out, it was everybody separate, but everybody keeps growing to be more and more everybody's. Um, that's, it's a necessary part of a democracy. If you don't have people who understand a common civic good, a public purpose, you can't have a democracy. If you don't have people who understand enough to be able to um, articulate public issues, debate public issues, um, vote knowledgeably, not just based on one soundbite, one 30-second soundbite or what they see on their Facebook page, but actually critically think about issues, you can't have a democracy. If, you, if people aren't educated enough to be able to run for public office, you can't have a democracy. Or simple things. Unless people are educated to the point that they can serve on juries, how do you have a jury trial? You want people who are, you want your common everybody to be educated sufficiently to be active participants in a democracy. And to me, that is as much of the heart of our community, the heart of our democracy, um, that's, that's what public schools are all about. That's why we have public schools. Um, and that's why our democracy continues to thrive, in my opinion. When we think about nation building, you know, that is one thing that, that people do in nation building. They start building a public system of education accessible to all. So why would you try and destroy that? 
You know, I, the American Legislative Exchange Council, does anybody not know who ALEC is? Okay. There, in, the, in 1990, Tommy Thompson came back from an, a, a national ALEC meeting, and he brought with him the playbook for vouchers. Um, and at that time, ALEC was a hidden organization. Um, they just, they say that they weren't hidden, they just were quiet about what they did. Um, so he came back from an, an ALEC meeting, and there's a great public radio interview um, of him where he says, yeah, I came back from the ALEC meeting, and I love ALEC meetings because you go and you get their bills, and then you put your own name on them and introduce them in your, in your own state. Uh, and he was quite proud of that. Um, I kind of like to think for myself. Uh, but that's the notion of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. They have different groups. They have a task force on education. They, they have various task forces. And the corporate bodies that are members of ALEC that really pay the bills, the corporate bodies serve as the chair of each one of these um, task forces. So um, at one point, for the, um, for the health, health task force, um, J.R. Reynolds, you know, tobacco, they chaired the health task force. Um, and of course, the NRA chaired safety. And K-12 Inc., the largest provider of private school curriculum and private charters and virtual schools and things like that in the United States, K-12 Inc. has chaired for a very long time the Education Committee. Um, so you might think about the self-interest involved when they're writing bills. They write bills and they're model bills and then they give them to legislators, uh, public officials who come to their meetings um, and say, here, introduce these. And like Tommy Thompson, lots of other legislators come and introduce them. When we, when, um, when we did Alec Exposed, I was fortunate enough to be the person who got all of those documents, all of those bills on K-12 education as they were leaked out of Alec for the first time to sort through all of those. And it was, I'd never heard of Alec. Until, until Mary Bateri told me about it, I had never heard of, I had never heard of Alec. And then she handed me this huge box of documents and said, would you review these model bills? And it was horrifying. And you know, then I went, and went into different state libraries and found all sorts of other documents and found the some of the original documents for this playbook of privatizing public schools, sending money to public schools. And the reason they said they wanted to send money to public schools is that public schools are not serving education well, according to them, because they have to serve everybody. That's the way it was written. Since we have to, we, public schools, since public schools have to serve everybody, they don't serve unique categories well. It was just breathtaking. Um, and the other piece of why we, 
wanted to do that was, you know, it was the Milton Friedman kind of, let's get some, let's get some competition. The goal was to get a voucher for every child in the United States, every citizen, even then, and these were like 1980s, 1985 was the first document I saw dated, uh, every citizen, a voucher for every citizen. And if you have a voucher for every citizen, then you won't need school districts because every school will run by itself based on the money that they get from the vouchers. And you won't need school districts and you won't need school boards. It doesn't, it just like, ugh. I don't know, for me, you may disagree with me, but for me, I think that, you know, a public school board is an important thing. And that was the, that was the 1985 start of the vouchers for, for, for private schools. Um, yeah, and then it kind of goes boom from there. But let's move on to where everybody starts. And they say, well, isn't this sending money to, pri to private religious schools? Yes, it is. And it's these days, um, these days, the, that wall of separation between church and state is pretty low, pretty windy, kind of like Jefferson's Serpentine Wall at the University of Virginia, pretty windy, but also very low. And um, the most recent 2017 United States Supreme Court case on the issue of providing funding to private religious schools is Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer. And it's about, um, I like to say, it's, it's about treaded tire, what do, you, what do you call that? Recycled tires as, as playground material. Simple kind, of, simple kind of case, right? In a, in a preschool. And the, the state did not allow Trinity Lutheran Church to come into a program where they were giving grant money out to put these recycled tires on playgrounds. And they let, other, they let other preschools, other private preschools come and do this, but they did not allow Trinity Lutheran Church to do that because they, they had a state constitution that says public money can't go to religious institutions, period. Those are Blaine amendments. And um, the United States Supreme Court said if you allow other, other nonprofits access to this kind of program, and the only reason you don't allow a program to come in is because it is religious in nature, that is discriminating against the religious institution. So Trinity Lutheran got permission to be part of that program to get their, their playground, their playground tread done, and that's, you know, that's pretty innocuous, right? I, you know, I can't think of prayers that, I mean, I, that's really not like really furthering religious, inst, uh, in, uh, furthering religious instruction. But it is that continuation of that slippery slope of if you provide $10,000 to the preschool to put, to put safety equipment in their, 
in their playground, then they're going to take that $10,000 and they're going to do something else with it, right? Because money is fungible. It, you, know, you, can, you can move it to spend something else. You can buy hymnals. You can buy whatever. You're listening to Keeping the Public in Public Schools by Professor Julie Underwood. She's speaking on the voucher program in Wisconsin. There is kind of that slippery slope of it. And so that is why a number of states have these Blaine Amendments. Originally, the Blaine Amendments were anti-Catholic amendments to not allow any money to go to religious institution. Those Blaine Amendments are going to be pretty well wiped out all across the United States due to this, to this piece. And so we're going to see more and more state funding going to religious institutions. I've, I feel pretty confident that that's going to happen. Um, and we've seen that move, um, that needle move from no state funding, no, no public funding to any religious institution all the way to this Trinity Church that says in, if you don't allow them in, it's a discrimination against religion. We've seen that move over the last 40 years or so. So the other piece is I really do worry about transparency, and I started down this before. One of the pieces that's really um, concerning um, is how do you use that money that the state gives you? If you're a private, particularly a private religious school, how do you use that money that the state gives you? Um, and there are very few, in, in Wisconsin, there are very few strings attached to this. Um, so that's difficult as well. You know, you don't, you don't turn in public, public kind of accounting mechanisms. The other part, um, two other parts, it's not clear, and it's, the funding for our voucher programs is pretty convoluted, pretty opaque, and it's not clear that where that money comes from. Does it come from the state? Does it come from local? Does it come from the school district? Does it come from the school board? It does, that's pretty murky to the general public. But the most important part, in my opinion, is that in the state of Wisconsin, our voucher bills have never been voted on as individual bills. So there are some of us that, that work with the Wisconsin Public Education Network, and the Public Education Network has pushed for two pieces here. One is um, a, a budget a voucher transparency piece on your local property tax bill so that you would know how much money was being sent to the private schools how much, through vouchers and how much money was being sent to the public schools as part of your tax bill, or a voucher transparency in terms of asking for a real up or down vote for vouchers, all of our voucher programs, not just bundled into part of the budget bill, which is what we have done with, um, with all of the uh, voucher programs in the state of Wisconsin so far. So there are lots of different kinds of vouchers, and um, there are vouchers and tax credits and tax scholarships and education savings accounts. Lots of people call the education savings accounts um, and the tax credits and the tax scholarships as really voucher light. Um, they're just a way to get your tax money into a scholarship uh, so that you can use, so that you don't pay your property tax bill, you take your property tax bill and use it for your own child's tuition. 
or you take that money that you might have spent on, a proper, on your property tax bill and put it into a, um, a scholarship fund that will then fund your child's tuition in private schools. So there are various ways that these are done. These have moved all over the United States. Since 1990, we're, the, like, we're ground zero for vouchers. We are ground zero for vouchers. And you can see uh, how this is spread all over the United States. It's kind of interesting that it is a bipartisan thing because we don't, in, in some, some fairly progressive places we have vouchers and some very conservative places we have vouchers. So this isn't a, a D or an R kind of thing. They have been um, discussed in, in both types of and other types of administrations. It's, it's a kind of strange looking map when you see that California and Texas, very different states politically, right? Both don't have vouchers. And Wisconsin does. Wisconsin's ground zero for vouchers. So we have in the state of Wisconsin special needs scholarships. We have the Wisconsin statewide parental choice program. Um, we have the Racine voucher program. We have the Milwaukee voucher program, which started it all. And then we have a private school tuition deduction now as well. So those are all the vouchers and then um, one voucher light. Like, let's start where they, where they all started. So, like, in Milwaukee, you have to be, live in Milwaukee. Racine, you have to live in Racine. And the special education one, you have to be a special needs student. And then the statewide one is for all other students. The catch is that the eligibility for each one of them may be a little different. And the... Uh, the amount that is paid is all a little different, and the effect, of the, uh, the effect on the school in terms of how that money is taken from the school district, where that money is taken from, each one of those is different. So this one started in 1990 as an experimental program. Um, it was very limited, very strictly, number of students were limited, and then since 1990, we've changed this repeatedly to open it up to more and more students, to provide additional programming, um, to provide more. Yeah, so it went, from, it went from a very small voucher to a fairly large voucher throughout time as well. Um, and I'm gonna, if you look at the numbers, it's increased dramatically in terms of the cost. One of the things about each one of these programs um, and this one has changed over time, is that the funding for the vouchers more and more is coming from the pool of money that is our general revenue money earmarked for public schools. Um, so in the end, you know, as this one goes out in, in time, it's not, people used to say, oh, it's just Milwaukee. We just will ignore it. It's just Milwaukee. We're, they're just taking this money away from the Milwaukee Public Schools, so the rest of the state won't pay attention to it. But even this money is coming from the general revenue program, and one of the things that's true about this and the other programs is that these are some sufficient. 
So that money comes out of general revenue and from, this, and from Milwaukee, but in the end, it's all going to come out of general revenue first, and then we divide what's left to all of the other public, to all of the public school districts in the state. So it's just taking, taking money right off the top. And also, these vouchers in most of the programs increase automatically, unlike spending for public school students. Public schools, um, we have revenue caps that have, have been on you know, since the, the 1990s as well, and we can't increase that spending. These go up automatically, you know, like some of them are a 3% increase every year, like a cost of living escalator, and public schools don't have that. So these, the vouchers keep getting a larger and larger amount of, our, of general revenue money off the top, and the students who are in the public schools keep getting fewer and fewer, and fewer dollars left for, left for the public schools. Racine, you have to be in the city of Racine, similar kind of thing. Um, it's really modeled in the same way. Um, and actually, for both of these, you have to be nowadays at 300% of poverty. So it's not just for low-income students. If your family is 300% or three times the poverty rate, then you're eligible. In Milwaukee and Racine, they do advertise this as kind of a universal voucher because the average family income in Racine and Milwaukee is fairly low. In the statewide program, in the statewide program, what you see is a smaller number of students since it's just started. Now, we had these 1990, and then we kind of had a long gap until 2011. And in 2011, 2013, 2015, we've had a proliferation of, our, of the vouchers. Um, so this is a, a newer statewide program. So it's still, it's, you know, it's only at 30, $34 million uh, at this point. 100,000 million, yep, $34 million, right? At this, only $34 million at this point. And it is um, eligible around the state. One of the things that you also have to think about is that for most of these programs, the students that come into the voucher program aren't, aren't all public school students. So 85% of this statewide program, those aren't, they aren't public school students. They're coming from private schools, for the most part, for the bulk of them, like over 75% of these students who are getting vouchers are, are already in the private school that they receive the voucher for. So year one, they're a private school student and their parent or family pays or their church pays or somehow they're private paying. And in year two, they're in the same school and the state pays the voucher. You're listening to Keeping the Public in Public Schools by Professor Julie Underwood. She's speaking on the voucher program in Wisconsin. Uh, so what you get is, it's not that we're taking students from public schools and giving them to private schools so that the funding for the same number of children is available. 
what happens is that we are continuing to fund more and more students because we're funding a higher and higher percentage of private school students with the vouchers. As time goes on, these caps will lift and we will have, you know, all of the caps will lift. And, and honestly, if you're a parent and a private school parent and you're paying tuition, you're eligible for a voucher, you're going to take it, right? So also, if you remember the, the, uh, the plan for vouchers was a voucher in every backpack. So you t do some simple math all the way out here. We're going to add, possibly, probably, if it continues, add those private school students into the pot of money that we divide out. Remember, they, go, they get taken first. But it'll be one, about $1.2 billion in addition for, for vouchers. Now, I'm not sure this legislature or any legislature is going to add $1.2 billion on top to pay for those vouchers. What happens is that $1.2 billion gets taken off the top before they fund the public schools that are left. Oh, I'm sorry. The question was, do we have all of these separate programs? So is there a Racine Parental Choice Program, a Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, a Special, Ed, special Needs Voucher Program, and a Wisconsin, what, was, Wisconsin Parental Choice Program? Was it all others? All others, right? Yes, there are four separate programs, plus the, plus the tax deduction. So if you aren't eligible for, for a voucher, you are eligible for the tax deduction. Uh, because they've all been done too, uh, they've all been created in kind of like very separate ways. Milwaukee was like this grand experiment. Racine was, the legislature was looking at a Racine takeover. Um, the move for vouchers generally was the statewide one. All others, yeah. And the special needs vouchers was before the Racine, but it had been beat back by the... It had been beat back by the special ed advocates who did not want the special ed voucher because it's a really crazy one. Yes, they have different income criteria and the result of, the, of, of how you calculate the money coming out of the, the public school is different for each one of them. And the amount of money that is sent to sent is different for each one of them because, of course, nothing could be easy, right? Sandy asked if the premise originally was we're going to increase student achievement in Milwaukee. I, I get more and more cynical. I'm not even sure that really was the real premise in 1990. Um, I think that, that there is a profit motive for lots of people who want to have private schools. Because you've got to think, in, in the Milwaukee program, there are a huge number of those schools that serve 90% voucher students. They would not be in business if, if, if we didn't have a voucher program. So it is not an isolated program in the state of Wisconsin. It affects the entire state. Um, and if you see the, 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 that northern band across there, they don't have very many private schools. They also don't have a lot of people. It's not as a fairly sparse kind of part of our state. Um, we'll see if we have more private schools coming to, to, to participate in this kind of thing. Um, 
up in, up in that area. But it isn't, it is not, it's not an isolated program any longer. Um, the special ed vouchers are really convoluted. Let me just say this about the special ed vouchers. It's $12,000 that goes to the private school. Um, you have to be an IDEA eligible, a child with a disability. And um, the, the public school still has some responsibility for that student, still has responsibility for services. And what we've seen so far in other states, because uh, there are other states that have these special needs vouchers, and this is why the special ed, advoc the special ed advocates were fighting against it, what we've seen happen in other states is students, students start in the private school under a special ed voucher, and they're asked to waive their federal rights to an appropriate education in order to go into the private school. They may not get the services that they thought that they were going to get for their children, and so they come back to the public school. And that's true for a number of other, not special needs children, but other children who may go to a private school, may not get what they're looking for, and then they come back to, a, to the public school. Yeah, and that causes a problem with the, with the funding because, you know, you're counted as a, as a student twice a year, and that's how the public schools get their funds. And so if you come back after we've done our counts, we don't get funding for you but we provide those services for you. We provide services for, the, for, for those children. You're listening to Keeping the Public in Public Schools by Professor Julie Underwood. She's speaking on the voucher program in Wisconsin. How much is this? I added the independent charters in there too, even though we didn't talk about the independent charters. That's another way we don't really have at this point we don't have a lot of independent charters in this area of the state. They do in some other areas of the state. Those are charters that are independent of the public school system, chartered by some other organization. The city of Milwaukee is, I mean, the city of Madison um, has a number of charter schools that are their own charter schools. For those of us who have been in this business for a while, we used to call those magnet schools. That's the way Madison does it. They do them as, they do them, they call them charters, but they're actually just a magnet school within the, within the public school system. These are independent charters. We will be seeing those um, in, the, in Dane County probably within the next couple of years. So how much? That's a lot of money, right? And then think about the $1.2 billion that we could add on to that as these caps go away. And then I've talked about where this money comes from. And basically, it comes, for the most part, it comes from the, particularly as it moves into the, into the future, it comes from general revenue in the state and the local school district. So those two sources, the money gets pulled from those two sources to fund on a some sufficient basis. So whatever we say we're going to give, the state says they're going to give, that's the amount that they give. And what's left over is given to the public school students. So to me, this is the cycle of what happens. Um, remember that we had a 
$1.6 billion budget cut in 2011 for public schools in the state of Wisconsin. And then we've seen a lot of a voucher programs since then. 2011, 2013, 2015, all of these come in. So you cut funding for the, for the schools, and then you blame the results of not, you know, like if you, you have to cut services if you cut money. So cut services, the school gets blamed for those cut in services, and that's a vicious cycle. To me, that, that, that is the, the real end result. That's a, a very vicious cycle. Remembering all the time that in the state of Wisconsin, we have a state constitutional obligation to provide public education. The legislature has a state um, constitutional obligation to provide public education. District schools, public schools, that system should be a uniform system and free for, t free for tuition from all. Now, what we've seen is a parallel system of private unregulated schools being created. And it doesn't say that you can create two. I assume that if you create a second one, you still have to fulfill this constitutional obligation to create a system of schools and to provide a Wisconsin students' consti state constitutional right to an education in the state, because that's what our, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has said students, students have. It is, um, you know, it's a nonpartisan issue, um, but it is a very political issue, from school board elections to county supervisors to mayors of cities, certainly to state legislators, all of these elected positions have a huge impact on public schools. So it is a nonpartisan issue, um, but it is, it's also a state responsibility. And I urge you to think about that, uh, those, those issues as you, as you move along. I think this is a really appropriate forum. I do want to make a shameless pitch for the Wisconsin Public Education Network that advocates for public schools in the state of Wisconsin, providing, it's a really a, you know, kind of an organizing feature for lots of local groups um, all over the state, a coalition, but do, how, many, how many locals do you think we have now? Like 80? Is, I heard, like at least 80 local organizations all over the state that are working to support public schools. And this is, a, this is a nice piece on ways that you can support public schools that you may not think about, you know, that are fairly simple to support public education um, in addition to voting. We also would urge you to, um, to go to the website, consider joining the Public Education Network or providing support, financial, time, whatever you might have. You've been listening to Keeping the Public in Public Schools by Professor Julie Underwood. She's a professor of law, education, policy, and practice at UW-Madison. The talk took place on June 6, 2018 at the Capital Lakes Retirement Community in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. 
There are study materials and the League's position on this issue at their website at lwvdanecounty.org. To find out more about the Wisconsin Education Network that Professor Underwood spoke of, go to wiseducationnetwork.org. That's WISC, W-I-S-C, educationnetwork.org. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.